Welcome to Glass Houses, a Billy Joel podcast. I'm Michael Grosvenor. And I'm Jack Frenino. Join us as we dig deep into Billy Joel's songs and history and what his music has meant to us. Talk to me. I hate you. I don't want to ever be with these people again. Leave me alone. I don't want to get on a plane. I don't want to get out of bed. No, I want my refrigerator. You are so beautiful. When I was in high school, oh, here comes Billy Joel. Here comes Billy Joel. And now it's here comes Billy Joel. Billy Joel. Years before Billy Joel started doing masterclasses, and long before MTV stopped showing music videos, there was Night School. Broadcast in late 1982, Night School was a half-hour show on MTV where Billy fielded questions from an audience of young fans. Fresh off the success of The Nylon Curtain, he tells stories, gives some behind-the-scenes glimpses of the music industry, and of course, plays piano. The program turned out to be a one-off event. There was never a second episode or another version with a different host or musician. At the time, MTV was a new and untested concept, and Night School is a relic of when the channel was at its most daring and experimental. The show is a diamond in the rough for Billy Joel fans. It's currently only available on YouTube, and it doesn't get much attention from fan forums, biographies, or any official publications. But it features Billy in a great mood, cracking jokes, and telling stories he'd refine and rehash for later interviews. It's a rare, candid insight to the artist in between the release of his most artistically ambitious album and just before the lighter, more pop-oriented and innocent man would launch him into the next level of superstardom with a new generation of fans. Join us as we dig deep into Billy Joel's MTV Night School from 1982. So you didn't know you were going to be on TV, huh? (laughs) Now this is uh, good training for people who want to get in show business. This is on the firing line, so um, it's good practice. I gotta do it. You gotta do it. Okay, so uh, X. A few episodes ago, we talked with Johnny Lyde, who did a great reimagining of the Nylon Curtain album. While we were setting up that interview, I had mentioned that including that episode, we had three Nylon Curtain era centric episodes on tap for the year. Well, it turns out now there's four. It just occurred to me that this would be another Nylon Curtain era item to cover. And that is the Billy Joel MTV Night School from 1982. And this is an often overlooked piece of Billy Joel memorabilia. We don't see a lot of clips from it. There's not a lot of great copies of it up on the YouTube. I mean, they're there, but they're clearly ripped from VHS. This is a great find, you know, for the, if you're looking for a great gift for the person who has everything Billy, I don't know, send them this link. In all seriousness, this is one actually, I wasn't really that familiar with at all. I think I've heard you mention it, Michael. Yeah. But I'd certainly never seen it before this. What's interesting about it to me is, you know, in the 90s, especially after the River of Dreams era where he had stopped putting out albums. Billy was really ramping up the master classes. He did a ton of them in the 90s and later, and some sprinkled throughout prior as well, but certainly he accelerated that then. This seems to be the first glimpse of a Billy Joel master class 
that I've ever seen. So it's fascinating to see Billy kind of at the peak of his recording career doing one of these. Yeah, not only will it foreshadow the master classes, there's also some accounts of things he says in this that he'll either start saying more often later, or we get little bits and pieces of different stories that we've either heard before, or they get more fleshed out. It's a little bit of Billy Joel Project Object, if we have any uh, other uh, Zappa fans in, in the audience here. You know, it's just these little bits of artifacts of the Billy Joel universe that either start here, continue through this, or continue to evolve uh, in this episode. Like so many great storytellers and so many, you know, musicians and artists at Billy's Caliber who have gotten interviewed hundreds of thousands of times, you inevitably get asked the same questions. And so you've got a catalog of stories to pull from. It is interesting to see, you know, where some of these stories sat in 82, because they would develop even further as time went on. And I mentioned Uncle Frank a moment ago. Before we get into it, I want to mention that... um I don't know where he sits in this exactly, but when I first heard Night School, I was reminded of a uh, section of the real Frank Zappa book in a chapter called Failure. Okay. I'm going to read a couple quick excerpts here and you'll see why it's, um, uh, first of all, why it's relevant to this. But also, I, I really always love this chat, the chapter of this book, because it's something that like no other rock star ever talks about, you know? Yeah. Except, you know, Billy's Billy's one to like admit when he made a, a mistake here and there, but you know, this is a great idea. So he writes, uh, fail. well, he wrote, you know, he and his ghostwriter write, failure is one of those things that serious people dread. Invariably, the persons most likely to be crippled by this fear are people who have convinced themselves that they are so bitch and they shouldn't ever be placed in a situation where they might fail. Failure is nothing to get upset about. It's a fairly normal condition and inevitability in 99% of all human undertakings. Success is rare. That's why people get so cranked up about it. Here are a few examples from my own personal collection of crumbled dreams. These are excerpts from actual business proposals presented to guys with suits on in the real world. Even though they all flopped, the very idea of walking into a corporate office and dropping one of these boogers on Mr. Shomi's desk made it all worthwhile. A guy's got to have a hobby. So then he goes through these, you know, some of these like crazy things he's come up with over the years. But I should mention that he proposed CDs at one point, a proposal for a system to replace phonograph record merchandising, uh, talks about the limitations of vinyl, and then says new digital technology may eventually solve the warpage problem and provide the consumer with better sound quality in the form of compact discs, in parentheses, CDs. They are smaller, contain more music, and will presumably cost less to ship. So obviously this is, you know, you can come up with this before the discs came out. Okay, then he, he goes on. We propose to acquire the rights to digitally duplicate the best of every record company's uh, quality catalog items, store them in a central processing location, and have them accessible by phone or cable TV, directly patchable into the user's home taping appliances with the option of direct digital transfer. So basically, he comes up with either the idea for streaming music over the internet or the uh, TV music channels that we have today. He was always such a forward thinker. He really was. And it's, it's so funny that this book was written in 1988, obviously compiles in, you know, years of his, uh, of his ideas here. And they were in there. Yeah. I, I mentioned those two as fun, but then we have this, this must've happened later. Another miserable flop was a concept for a late night TV show in 1987. I embarked on a depressing journey into the air-conditioned wilderness of TV land, pitching ideas to groups of individuals worthy of further anthropological study. It all began with a meeting in the ABC network office on or about May, March 13, 1987. 
The title of it was Night School, a late night adult program, 60 minutes, five nights per week. He would be the host and they had a permanent faculty and a pool of visiting professors. And they would uh, show raw, uncut news footage from the daily satellite feed, point out the material other broadcasters have deleted, speculate on the possible motivations behind the deletions, and refresh people's memories about recent events connected to each day's breaking stories. So sort of like The Daily Show, if you would. It's kind of like a combination of The Daily Show and like some of those like political roundtables you would see on like Sunday mornings. And then he goes on, he comes out these things. Uh, MTV has shown an interest in the joint venture on this segment. The news and heavy rotation weekly summary would would air on M- MTV each Saturday. At least two brand new music videos would be constructed each day using Zappa's music or any artist willing to license their material at a special rate. Working on a 24-hour delay, yesterday's news footage would be converted into three-minute rock videos called News and Heavy Rotation. <laughs> As I was looking at it first, I thought that uh, Zappa had pitched it before actual night school on MTV, but I still thought it was a nice crossover between two of my own fandoms, so... Yeah, I definitely. Think I go for it. You'll you'll get another clear shot at Metallica in a in an upcoming episode, <laughs> <laughs> right? But uh, I I did think yeah. You know, aside from this, it, it was a, it was an interesting moment to uh, to go back to this book that I had you know read a whole bunch of times when I was younger. It's so funny to look at a guy that was that successful write a whole chapter about failure <laughs> for these ideas ended up becoming successful twenty to thirty years after his death. <laughs> yeah, no kidding. I always love artists whether it be like a zappa that just has so many crazy ideas that the struggle with him is like getting somebody to take a chance on it so i love you know that aspect too and you know and i love also you know billy's whole thing too where you know he's a guy who's been through the ringer of the music business and you know he kind of wants to show the way a bit and just kind of use his experience to help other people who are going to try to do what he's doing. So yeah, with that, let's get into Billy Joel's episode of uh, Night School, which aired on MTV in 1982. I did some digging around and I wasn't able to find any other instance of MTV doing something like this then. Yeah. When you, when you search Night School MTV, all that really comes up is uh, Billy Joel stuff. And then on the first page of Google is like one article about the Zappa one. You know, on Wikipedia for uh, Pressure the Song, it says a night school, a show airing on MTV in 1982 that ran roughly a half hour long, in which he answers questions posed by audience members. Billy Joe reveals that the pressure he was talking about in the song was something along the lines of writing pressure and pressure to provide. I wonder if this was always intention to be a one-off that they did with Billy, or was this something that MTV was looking to become a series that just... Never went anywhere after this one episode. Yeah. Now, in The Gothamist, there's an article, We Want Our MTV. Here's what was happening on MTV in 1982. It's important to realize that MTV was only a year old at that point, so they were definitely trying out different things. And the blurb here is, On Night School, a show airing on the channel in 1982, Billy Joel answered audience questions from his piano bench. This is the year he would premiere his video for Pressure, a song which he discusses in the below clip. So it does sound like this is the only time they did it. And, you know, you wonder if, yeah, it was maybe this was the pilot or that's just what they called this one, you know. But it's it's exciting to think that this was, uh, you know, back in those, you know, sort of Wild West days of MTV where they were just throwing stuff against the wall and, and just trying out whatever they wanted to see what worked. Yeah, definitely. In those first two years or so of MTV, they really were just trying to come up with any kind of content they could this is before every artist was making a video for everything they ever did. Their first year, it was like 
you know, <laughs> there were not like pretty much any music video was getting on the air because there just wasn't that much yeah. to pull from. So I think MTV was really still trying to figure out its programming at this point and just trying to, like you said, throw things against the wall and see what worked. And I mean, I loved it, but I, I, I can imagine it not taking off. I can certainly picture that. Yeah, it's a shame. I mean, this was a great concept. You know, it really reminds me of uh, what Billy would say at the beginning of at least one of his master classes where he talked about, you know, he wrote a letter to the Beatles being like, how did you write this? Blah, blah, blah. You know, he's trying to get like inside baseball and he got back, you know, send $5 for your autographed picture. Yeah. And so his whole thing was, I want to answer those questions for other people. And he was doing it, you know, even this far back. Yeah. And, you know, this is 82. So he was 33. This clearly was his, you know, the meat of the prime of his career as a recording artist and as a, as a pop culture person, <laughs> I guess you could say. It was just so cool to see Billy talking about this stuff while he's still in the thick of it, while he's still in the thick of right. writing records, making records and touring with behind it and making videos. Most of these later master classes, he has some distance from a lot of it. So I, I really liked seeing Billy in the thick of it, talk through it. And, you know, especially when we'll get to it, when he talks about the music industry in particular, you know, it, how funny is are the things that he says specifically about, you know, music as product and things like that with all the, you know, all the criticism that will get levied against MTV later on. Right. Yeah. I guess it's another testament to, you know, how revolutionary and free the channel was when it started. It was anything goes, man. Like, you know, the guy that did Headbangers Ball, he got fired. Because when they started playing grunge on on Headbangers Ball, all the metalheads wrote in complaining, and he wrote back, "Yeah, I agree with you guys. I wish I could do more metal, but they won't let me. They want to put grunge in there." Right. And then people found out about it, or he wrote or email whatever it was, and then you know the brass found out and they fired him over it. Yeah. You know, by the by the early '90s, like that was kind of no more. You know. Mm-hmm. So with that in mind, let's uh, let's take a look at this yeah. half hour curio little slice of life from Billy Joel, so to speak. Now, here's my question to you. Do you think these questions were planted? Hmm. Because the people sounded either nervous or like bad actors. And I can't decide which one it was. <laughs> I think it was more nerves. Yeah. I feel like it was pretty organic. And Billy seemed kind of, you know, he even made comments on like his approach with choosing who to pick from. Um, right. So, yeah, I think it was just, you know, nervous kids you know students asking these questions who you know one they're talking to billy joel and two they've got a camera on them so i think it was just a combination of that i'll, I'll bet you like there was some sort of pre-screening going on like maybe empty yeah they were like all right that's just don't don't raise your hand you know yeah <laughs> like okay you have a good question you know how to ask it that kind of it thing it wasn't like a kevin smith q a where like anyone and everyone gets up there and says whatever yeah, but you know they were. You know why too? Because they were really well structured. They were like, yeah, you know, I kind of call it like the Terry Gross, yeah, so to speak. You know, and like you know, you start with the statement and then you ask the question. Like you know, it's 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 actually, I think Terry Gross does it well. But um, that was something you know we learned when after I was done with uh, film, I w I then uh, continued my schooling in journalism. <laughs> yeah, but um, you know, it's kind of what they taught you was to uh, you know, you you construct it by you know, establishing the statement, you know, so there's context for the person you're interviewing. And then you ask the question based on that information. People tend not to do that, like out in the real world or casually, you know, you don't, you don't structure things that formally. You yeah, get more that, of the, uh, 
Chris Farley show stuff. <laughs> remember when you were in the Beatles? <laughs> <laughs> it was said, Paul is dead. That was a hoax, right? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that, well, I'm awesome. not really dead. <laughs> <laughs> no, you're doing great. You're doing great. <laughs> Idiot. Stupid. Stupid. <laughs> Idiot. Yeah. But you're right. They do seem largely structured that way. And it makes for good television. Yeah. I mean, I wouldn't be surprised if those are real questions and somebody was like, you know, ask it like this, you know, that kind of thing. Yeah. Yeah. So starting off the show, they show a few clips of what's to come. You see a clip of honesty and then one of Billy's famed Joe Cocker impression and a couple other miscellaneous clips. And Billy comes out to a round of applause as expected and one thing I noticed, he you could already tell he was just visibly in a good mood out of the gate. To me, he just seemed loose right up front, like he, he was ready to have a good time, and yeah. he just looked happy to be there. Yeah, well, as we learn later, he's very comfortable doing these Q&As, and he, he enjoys them. So, yeah. you know, probably a lot more fun than getting asked the same stupid interview questions again. What's nice about these, as opposed to media interviews, is you're going to get much more interesting, not, not that you're not going to get interesting questions from, you know, general media questions, but you're getting a different angle. You're getting someone who wants to go into the craft that you're doing. So I think he really enjoys that. So he walks on stage. He says, uh, you know, this is good training for people who want to get into show business. And he says, if I got to do it, you got to do it. And then he. Yeah, I like that he addresses that head on. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. And then I like this. And then like. So bluntly, he goes, so X. <laughs> That's the way to <laughs> yeah. get people to start asking questions. No pretense, no uh, yep. no preamble. And so the first question is the person who is uh, asking. Uh, Your new release, Pressure, is obviously like an influence of the music business on you. Do you think when you were younger and trying to get into the music business, the pressure was more intense or now that you've made it, the pressure is even more intense. Now, pressure is relative. Uh, when I was starting out and trying to get things going, the pressure was, if you don't get things going, they're going to throw you out of this apartment. That was that kind of pressure. It's like, I'm hungry, and my stomach was going, pressure, <laughs> food. Uh, so that, I think that's pretty intense pressure. The, the pressure I was writing about in this one wasn't necessarily music business pressure. It was writing, uh, writing pressure. Like, um, I always think of the novelist, you know, like um, Joseph Wambau or somebody. You're going to sit down, they're going to start a new novel. And there's the typewriter, and there's the paper rolled into the typewriter. And the typewriter's sitting there going, come on. <laughs> and that's, for those of you who tried to write, no. Um, you absolutely have no control. You go into the Twilight Zone. That's it. Do, 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 do. A young songwriter has just entered the Twilight Zone. <laughs> and you're sitting there, and that pressure, at the time, I was, I was saying, well, i got to write some more stuff for the album. I was about halfway through. And I said, well, what am I going to do? I don't have any ideas. It's gone. It's dead. I have nothing, nothing, nothing. There's nothing. And then um, the woman who's my secretary came into the house at that point and said, Wow, you look like you're under a lot of pressure. Uh, I bet you that'd be a good idea for a song. And I went, thank you. <laughs> so I give her the credit, but none of the publishing, okay? And I thought that was a great question to start. 
It's a, it's a, it's unexpected, but it's it is a good one. Because as Billy would go on to say, you know, pressure is certainly very relative, and both ends of the spectrum, struggling artists and successful artists, both have very real, very big sets of pressures. Yeah, and so you know, Billy talks about that and how you know when he was younger you know, starting out, it's like, you know, the pressure is, you know, you don't keep the gig or get the gig, you know, you run the risk of losing your apartment, you know, you need food, put food on the table, you know, the very primitive stresses and pressure of survival. Not to, you know, I mean, it's, it's easy to, uh, Monday morning quarterback this yeah, 40 years later, but you know, the great follow-up question would be, you know, how did that, how does that affect your writing when the pressures are different? Billy uses it himself to segue into what pressure was really about was songwriting pressure, which I don't think this is because I think this is a song. He really hasn't talked about much since this album. He's played it a lot, but he hasn't really discussed it. And so it was really interesting to learn how pressure was actually written about essentially writer's block, which is ironic because it's such a universal song. Like it, it, I really think it's successful because it's about, you know, just became about so much more, you know, anybody can project their thing on it. Well, and that's kind of the, one of the geniuses of Billy is he's able to take something very personal and make it universal. Yeah. The follow-up question to that, the next person comes up and asks, oh, wait, wait, for the- given all the pressure, given all your energy, and given the music business, what it always is and probably always will be, did you ever feel like quitting and what made you change your mind? I never, it never even entered my mind not to do it ever. So that's kind of interesting that, you know, at that point, it's something that never even entered his mind. I find that to be an astoundingly significant yet often overlooked point, not only for Billy, but, you know, when you think about it for any of these musicians, like, uh, you know, we talked about pre cold spring Harbor, Billy was living in a laundromat, didn't have anything going on. You know, you got to remember just how insurmountable the odds seem for people like this, because like, I think it's a little easier in a way now but, you know, especially back then, it was like, you you starved, man. These people just really kind of lived it. And, and you know, there was no guarantee that they were going to make it. Right. And, you know, to that point, you know, it's it's always important to remember, you know, if you know that failed musician in your life that, like, wouldn't give up the dream before you make fun of them, just remember that could have been any of your favorite musicians, you know, yeah. had things just not broken a certain way. Yeah. Um, but, yeah, just to think about, like, if you ever wonder, you know, what makes a successful musician successful it's that it's it's not even that failure isn't an option that's like silly bravado you know yeah it's that quitting isn't the option it's just that like this is just what i do you know this is not something i want to do this is not something i decided to do yeah the thought that it doesn't even enter your mind that you're just taking it as par for the course yeah is such a difference absolutely and you know he's a lifer i mean and that's why right. anytime even in his later quote unquote retirement years from recording and everything like that, even when it seemed like he was going to stop playing live, it would always call him back. It's always in him. And it's just, it's a rare breed of artists who who never can turn it off. I, it's interesting. I've, I've read up on so many bands I always loved growing up and, you know, whose records I listen to all the time. And like, it just boggles my mind that some of my favorite musicians are now completely out of the music business who don't write, don't perform, do anything anymore. But, but they're so good and it just breaks your heart to see some incredible artists. They they just don't have that in them. What Billy has just, just like never stopped. Billy probably would have never stopped, but you know, it's, it's important to remember in that, in that same vein, 
as we learned in our Piano Man episode, had that one student in California not gone on this ridiculous crusade to to resurrect Piano Man, yeah, the world would be a very different place. He, he jokes a bit about talking down on artists and musicians. You know, oh, when are you going to get a real job? Like, you know, what he does isn't work. Um, <laughs> right. But but then he frames it with this funny story how, you know, he had a cousin who would always say that to him. People start talking, yeah, when you, my cousin, right? You know, when are you going to get a real job? <laughs> uh, you know, we were just starting out and we're working on these little clubs and a slime hanging off the walls and you know there was no cold cuts you know my cousin would show up it's my cousin from ohio and uh he'd be backstage and he'd drink all the the crew's beer and he would eat all the cold cuts on this what we call the seagull platter we call the seagull platter <laughs> and he would you know uh, when are you going to get a real job? Or when are you going to work for a living? Work for a living, right? And the crew loved him. The band really loved this guy. You know? <laughs> and then about four years ago, he asked me for $50,000. You know what I mean? <laughs> and I told him, well, when I get a real job, we'll talk about it. I'm going to make an interjection here, and I'm going to tell a, a uh, completely unverified story. You know the psych quora where like anybody can ask a question and anybody can a- can answer it. So yeah. you know we're talking as reliable as Wikipedia here, or uh, you know Setlist FM. Somebody was like you know to- you know talking about you know is Billy Joel a nice guy? Is like well I'm going to tell you this story. You know I was working you know so wherever and uh, at Soundcheck he would tell all these he would come on and he would tell all these jokes and stuff and everybody would laugh and then like the next day he would tell the same jokes and everybody would laugh. It's like. I was just so disgusted, like, oh, we got to stroke his ego and like laugh at the same jokes every night. Like, is that the kind of thing? And I'm like, and I immediately thought, no, that's how you develop your banter. You think a comedian does a special, like just off the cuff? No, they, they, they tell the jokes how many times you get the rhythm down, get the words right. You know, he's working out material. And once again, to take it back to Zappa real quick, one of the things I realized early on when, uh, when I got the internet, you know, like in, in high school was I was just kept looking up Frank Zappa every chance I got. And I started to realize that he would give the same answers over and over to the same questions, you know, in various interviews, which is another side tangent is why, you know, I, I, I really latched on to the Terry Gross thing when I went to school for journalism, that idea of like, you know, you can use that to like acknowledge the question everyone asks and ask something new, you know? Yeah. So Billy, how many times have we heard these things from Billy? Well, it's number one, it's because they keep asking him the same question. But number two, if you listen closely, you you can hear him workshop it over the years. You yeah. Know? <laughs> if, yeah. If you pay enough attention to them, they keep refining. It's like a comedian's bit. So it's like, it's on one hand, like it's a little canned. Yeah. On the other hand, it's maximized for like great effect. I always likened it to like Jerry Seinfeld working through his material. He just happens to play a bunch of songs in between. Next question was asking him what came first, music or lyrics? Billy's always stayed true to this. He's always said music comes first. And uh, he did go into the sodomy story. But it's a variation. This is before Liberty got the credit for the for, for sodomy. <laughs> when I got to writing songs, that's where I came. I was like, well, I, I feel music first. I feel the melody first. And then the lyric, um, to me, is kind of kicked off by uh, if I like a melody. If a melody says, if melody um, creates an image already or a feeling or a mood, um, now you got to have a title. You gotta have a title. Uh, like Honesty, I was writing Honesty, it was originally Sodomy, okay? <laughs> but, 
you know, tender song. Sodomy. <laughs> Such a lonely word, you know. Now, whether it's a bailout title, a phony title, a working title, but the title to me is like, uh, that's, you know, the melody always comes to that title, the way I write anyway, but I, I do write the music first. Again, that's um, something I wonder about, you know, when these stories change, how much of it sometimes is ego versus how much of it is sometimes you tweak the details just to get to the punchline. If you don't have time for the right setup, you just leave out the fact that like we were in the studio and I heard the drummer say, you know, that's like, if you have more time, you expand on that. Yeah. Tell the whole story with the whole setup. But like in the, in the rapid fire thing, you have to get to the point. So the, the alternate take of that is it was just, yeah, the original words were sodomy. You know, I always kind of felt like it was funny that, you know, the original story was Liberty is like, I hate, you know, about, um, only the good day young. Yeah, I hate reggae. We're not doing reggae. We're not from Jamaica. You know, the closest we've got. And then it's come out over the years. It was, you can't play reggae. <laughs> like, we love reggae. Right, it we just, love just reggae. Working. We've played yeah. reggae, but we can't, we, yeah. the Billy Joel band, can't pull it off. <laughs> it didn't work coming from Billy. I think there's less pride in in uh, in, in taking the credit for sodomy. <laughs> right, exactly. There's the bit from this one. I think there's less pride in taking the credit for sodomy. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> that out of context sounds hilarious. Is that the thing you're going to like put at the end of the episode, like 10 seconds? It's going to be the Easter egg at the very end. <laughs> no, that's what you're going to put. It's going to be when, like in like in a couple of weeks, I'm going to be like scrolling through Facebook and, I, and I'm going to see episode number whatever is out. Here's a sneak peek and I'm going to hit play. And it's going to be me going. <laughs> it's going to be just yeah, that. Yeah, there's no pride taking credit for sodomy. <laughs> Dude, are we going to get the little E on Spotify for this one if we keep this up? Right, yeah. That's our new slogan, our new tagline for the podcast. <laughs> and another thing, you know, he does, I think he plays a bit of like, oh, here's an example of when I tried to write lyrics first and he was just coming up with these dumb lyrics and trying to force a melody into it and basically just illustrating yeah. that for him, it just doesn't work to try lyrics first. Now, funny enough, if I remember correctly, Jimi Hendrix was the opposite. Jimi yeah. Hendrix had to write the lyrics first because if not, the lyrics would all come out in a jumble. Yeah. He said. Yeah. yeah. Now I know Metallica, for example, is music first as well. But Metallica, it starts with the riff. When they're going into every album cycle, they'll all submit their riffs. Lars is the architect of the songs. He'll be like, this one and this one go together. So right. he'll kind of find the pieces, put them together. Then Lars and James will shape the song. Yeah. But if you listen to the demos, it's all like wanana lyrics. Yana, yana, na. He doesn't have lyrics, and he's, but he's working the uh -huh. melody out, and then the lyrics will come later.
Have you heard about the um, the lawsuit against Dua Lipa for uh, levitating? No, I haven't. Part of it was, you know, blah, 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 you know, she lifted from this, she lifted from that. She was on a podcast where they played what's purported to be like the voice memo from when she was working with the producer. And it was, hemanema, 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 hemanema. You know, she was just like making up the lyric, you know, making up this, this, the, the syllables. But she was obviously workshopping the melody as she was going. Oh, interesting. You know, just like a, a real... Uh, fly on the wall moment of, of somebody actually doing that. My good friend, Donnie Brown, he's the guy who used to play drums on the verf pipe. I remember there would be times I'd be just driving around with them or whatever. We'd be talking and he'd be like, hang on one second. And he'd grab his, like, then he had a little cassette recorder and he'd just like yeah. hit record and either sing a line or sing a, a melody. And it's like, and then he'd be like, okay, what were we saying? When it strikes, it strikes. And it's like, yeah. you just want to get it down before you lose it. Exactly. So after the sodomy story, you know, he actually goes into honesty. And what's interesting mm-hmm. is he screws it up. He starts it an octave too high. Oh, that's right. <laughs> and he starts playing it and he doesn't, he, he can tell it's wrong, but he can't figure out why at first. And then he stops and he's like, see, even we screw up. And that comes back later too, funny enough. You know, he decides he's like, I'm going to do the, the edited version. So he just plays like a verse in the chorus and then goes into the right. end just to give an example. Oh, mm-hmm. this is a funny bit when he starts singing the song. I don't know if you caught this. He, you can tell he's like listening because he's not sure if it's coming through the house. He, you can see him kind of look and then he goes, is it going out there? And then he turns it into a joke because he goes, is it going out there to each and every one of you? You know, I was listening to it and and I must have missed that setup. I thought he was just like doing like a crooner joke. He was looking, listening to see if it was going into going out to the house. Oh, hold on. I want to watch this now. Yeah. Oh, see what I mean? I'm not ready for this. Eddie, you told me I wasn't going to have to do this. <laughs> see, even we forget. Mm, okay. No, it doesn't start up there. It starts down here. This is sometimes I forget the words. You know, like Piano Man. I've been Piano Man for 10 years, right? It's 9 o'clock on All right. And his mind starts to drift. I wonder if they have beer backstairs. That cheese looked pretty good, right? And then you go, there's a cheese on the man. And you go, and the audience is like, oh, the sound of 20,000 people going. Oh. It was like, uh, you see the Coney fight? You see the Coney fight? Jerry Coney and Larry Holmes? Okay. When he hit Larry Holmes in the chops, you never heard like 16,000 men going, Okay. for tenderness it isn't hard to find you can have the love you need to live is it going out there to each and every one of you if you look for truthfulness you might just as well be blind it always seems to be so hard to give honesty such a lonely word everyone is so untrue honesty 
is hardly ever heard and mostly what I need from you It's actually right before that, you know, talking about like screwing up where he talks about uh, messing up Piano Man because his mind wanders. That's a variant of that story that he would go on to talk about in the future. I think at some point, Just the Way You Are was the song he used as the example where he'd be like, oh, I wonder what's on the room service menu tonight. He's told that story, a variant of it a number of times over the years. Yeah, to that point, the one I always remember is uh, I wonder if they have a burger. Maybe I should get a burger when I get back to the room, you know? Just, yeah, it's funny. He just keeps workshopping different things. What's the funniest one, you know? <laughs> right, exactly. Yeah, this is the fun one. Uh, yeah, the next question is, I'm going to ask him, what what goes through your mind when you hear your song on the radio? And actually, I'm just going to play this little bit because it's funny. I just wanted to know what goes through your mind when you're uh, hearing a song that you wrote on the radio. What kind of feelings do you get? Good, 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 good. <laughs> it doesn't suck. I tell you, truthfully, you try to be cool, and you know, yeah, okay, it's on the radio now, but um, it's like, the songs are like my children, I really, I felt like I've gone through a certain amount of labor, and I felt like I've given birth, you know, it's a very painful process, for me, anyway, you know, and... That's my kid, and when my kid, it's like my kid graduated from elementary school, and it's like you're really proud, you know, that's my child, and that's my kid talking on the radio. I don't think of it as me, ego trip, it's like, in my kid doing good, you know, like that kind of thing. That's the feeling, it's, it's really a great feeling, it really is, except when it's speeded up and there's a skip in it. Right. Oh, my kid screwed up. Oh. And it doesn't suck, is he mentions that later, like when he's in the uh, master classes, he's like... I'll answer early, but don't don't start with the what was it like sleeping with Christy Brinkley. It didn't suck. That's that's one he's used later as well. And then he kind of goes into the story about how his songs are like his children, which is another running theme. I like this one, the way this guy frames the question. It actually causes Billy to laugh. He says, you ever, uh, It seems like you're really enjoying yourself up there. And uh, I can appreciate, what I guess, what it would be to, to be famous just... Because I'm not. But do you, ever, do, you ever, do you ever miss just being one of the crowd? Or you know, do, do, you ever, do you ever think about that after you were famous? And what it would be like to just be anonymous again? Yeah. Uh, once in a while, you'd like I go to Yankee Stadium and I want to watch a ball game. I either have to wear a disguise or... Uh, it's so tough. <laughs> no, it's not. Uh, it's just once in a while you do just kind of... I just, I just, just, uh, I just want to be a regular person, but you deal with it. It's, it's just um, something. To, I'm still not used to it. I still think it's funny. There he is. That's it. That's it. That's it. I'm like, who, who are you looking at? Right? Because it's like when I was in high school. Oh, here comes Billy Joel. Here comes Billy Joel. And now it's here comes Billy Joel. Like, what's your real name? You know, that kind of thing. Um. I want to see a ball game, right? I want to sit and I want to eat the hot dog and the popcorn. These kids are all lined up in front of me, going, um, and all these people around me are mad. That really is even worse than just me wanting to be by myself. 
because all these people, these diehard Yankee fans, you get the hell out of here, can't see a game. Somebody asked him about you know, how he deals with stage fright. It tends to happen to him when he begins to overthink what he's doing. That plays into, you know, that, that idea that like, he doesn't like to practice that much. He doesn't like to like rehearse with the band too much. He likes to be fresh. He likes people on the edge of their kind of paying attention a little more yeah. sort of thing. Yeah. And he says, you know, when he overthinks it, you know, he's like, your brain does so much better on muscle memory that when you're in the moment, if you're trying to analyze what you're doing too much, it'll throw you. You know, what has been happening to me lately. We do. Everybody loves you now. Uh, we've been playing that one since like jump. But lately, I've been overthinking the end, and I go one riff too many, like every single time lately, like in practice, because I'm not just on autopilot with it anymore. You know, like I'm just like, okay, how many times does this happen? How many times did we do it? Next thing I know, the whole band's looking at me. I'm like, no, oh, I did it again. <laughs> well, well. Uh, so someone asked him, uh, how, do you do anything special to prepare your voice? And he basically mm-hmm. says, I do nothing good. I drink and I smoke. And basically, he always wanted to sound like Ray Charles. So he's trying to louse his voice up to sound like Ray Charles. And we've heard him do Ray Charles. We heard, certainly heard him do, do Joe Cocker. But I, I, was, it was, I was so pleasantly surprised to hear him do Richie Havens. I know. And that the audience in 82 caught it. Now, Richie Havens has regularly, regularly put out albums into the 2000s. Oh, yeah. But, you know, his, his days of fame, like, you know, mainstream fame was, you know, mostly done by the mid-70s, being a household name sort of thing. Right. And he did pretty good Richie Havens, too. I was very impressed by that. I did not see it coming. He did a Steve Winwood. He said, basically, Steve Winwood was trying to do Joe Cocker, do, trying to do Ray Charles. Right. And then he said, <laughs> what did he say? And then take out the top teeth and you have Richie Havens. So he's, <laughs> Yeah, take out the top teeth. <laughs> yeah. So basically, like all his favorite singers were basically trying to do Ray Charles. Which is an yeah, interesting genealogy to consider. I do intentionally change my voice to song and song. I says, I want, I'll, you know... Today, I'm going to be Steve Winwood. You know what I mean? Uh, what's that song he does? Uh... Yeah, yeah, okay. <laughs> <clears throat> Come down off your throne. <clears throat> I have warmed up, okay. See that kind of thing. Still trying to be Ray Charles, but the white version of it, right? <laughs> Then you have the, uh, see, you can do a lot of voices just trying to be Ray Charles. Then you have the, uh, the Joe Cocker version, right? Of trying to be Ray Charles, right? You are so beautiful. Yeah, I'm He's trying to do Ray Charles too. He has to make any lie about it. He says, I'm trying. But he talks, he's from Wales and old dolls. You can't understand what he says. Then you have from from Joe Cocker, if you do Joe Cocker, you can do Richie Havens. You just take out the top teeth. Hey, look yonder, tell me what do you see? Now, these are all ways of developing a singing style through trying to be somebody you're never going to be. You just you weren't born to do that, but you're going to try. You have an idol, you have someone you look up to, and the different stages you go through, you find out different things about your voice, and they come in handy. Next question. 
Starts with a statement that has nothing to do with the question. <laughs> basically says they like Allentown. They like the song. Yeah. You, you remember when you wrote Allentown? That was awesome. <laughs> but the actual question in this one is, is there a particular classical musician that influences your music? Um, he goes on to discuss the reason for the name Allentown and basically says, you know, it was just, it sounded very American and it fit the motif of the album. And he discusses, it does a little bit of the Allentown writing process, you know, living here in Allentown and there's really not much going down, you know, I'm dying here in Allentown. <laughs> right. And then they put us under the ground. <laughs> <laughs> ah, this is another interesting one. Uh, next question is how do you prevent Billy Joel from becoming a product? So this is that, right. that segment that you were talking about earlier. Yeah. It's just, I thought it was great. He kind of starts off with a joke and you think he's going to be flippant and then he, he really goes into it. And he yeah. Gives, it's a really rare glimpse. And ultimately, Billy says, you know, you have to protect yourself and you got to be involved. You have to get involved with a certain amount of what the business is that goes on. You may not know what they're talking about, but you have to protect yourself from being marketed because they'll take an album, right? It's, or a piece of music, something that you've worked arduously and you put your heart and your soul into it. So you're very sensitive about it. And it's like this beautiful thing. And then they'll... Go out and buy the new village all I'll admit the most wonderful thing. You know, it's like, wait a minute, no, that wasn't the idea I really had in mind. It's the greatest thing since the first coming. Go by, you know. So you have to you have to say, no, wait a minute, you have to get involved even with the advertising. You can't cover everything. Uh they will they will use the hard sell. Uh it's the music business is a business and they wanna sell and they wanna compete and they wanna outdo and they wanna move units right and that, we moved a lot of units today bill <laughs> that's nice how's the record going you know a lot of units moved it's, and um love your new product right i say i say procter and gamble right? love my new product and they're going to refer to it like that don't get put off that's their you know it's the terminology they use on the marketplace so get it to, i get involved with it because i said i will have nothing to do with the business i am an artist. I wore a beret for a while. And I'm an artist. I, I know nothing from this business thing. And go buy, you know, Billy Joel album, you know, on sale right now. And also, you get a new blue cheer if you're out now. <laughs> I said, Wait a minute, I gotta, I gotta shut this right down. And that's, and I started to get involved. And something you're gonna have to learn in general how the business things work: promotion, advertising, uh, even uh, if they do pick a single, how it's edited. Because they'll, they'll take a single and say, we want that for a single, but it's five minutes long. We've got to cut it down to three minutes. So, like, pressure, right? I got involved with the edit on it. They could have done it like this. Uh, uh, okay, now you're halfway through the song. You've only had to... <laughs> I got it. Three minutes. Okay. That's, That's what they would. So you have to get involved with all those things. You don't have, to, and you don't have to sell out either. You can put the, you can lay it on the line. And say, look, Jack, I know you got to promote. I know you got to market. I know you got to advertise on stuff. But this is me, and it, and it's got to represent me as far down the line as it can go. And hopefully, you have some control of it. Other than that, they'll, otherwise, they'll just, they'll throw you out there like a box of cornflakes. I'm curious. And this is like, I, I don't have a good conclusion on this, but I want to know sort of where Elizabeth factors into this. She was like kind of the boogeyman in a lot of ways. She took a lot of the heat from people 
But, you know, how much did she do on behalf of Billy and how much did, you know, where Billy didn't have to be the bad guy, maybe, or, you know, he didn't have to, like, step up and be the one involved where it's a nice sleight of hand when, like, you can make these demands, but you do it through somebody else. So you always look like the nice guy. Right. Yeah. This is 110% conjecture, but I'm just wondering what that dynamic was like in this sense. How much of his forcefulness was coming through her? Or was it mostly right. her? You know, it's hard to say. Yeah. Or did he learn that from her? The one thing it's interesting, he talks a little bit about radio edits, how he actually gets involved yeah. a bit with where they make the cuts. Yeah. What was he saying? Like, yeah, you can't just stop at 305. Like, yeah. And he's like, you have to learn to sit. Like, halfway through pressure stops, you know? <laughs> Next question somebody talks about home court advantage and do you like playing in New York more than anywhere else? And I like this. You know, Billy talks about the pros and cons of New York. He's like, you know, it's New York, it's home We're we always know we're home. So that always feels good. And he's like, but you know, it's stressful because all your friends are there and your family is there and your the band's family, everyone is there. So it's stressful. Yeah. Another thing you wouldn't really think of that way. And he's like, I can go into Kansas city and be loose. It doesn't matter. Cause no one's there. You know, he's like, I don't know anybody in Kansas city. It's a heightened situation when it's in New York and, I think he can be a little looser when he's elsewhere. To that point, you know, what does he say on Live from Long Island? That's right. Everybody we ever knew in our whole life was here. Yeah. Thank you. Good evening, Long Island. Okay. Everybody we ever knew in our whole life is here. He says they're they're running out of time. He's going to wrap it up with a song. And then that's when you start getting the shouts from the audience of what they want to hear. <laughs> I heard quite a few Viennas from the crowd. And I think maybe seen some of an Italian restaurant I heard. Uh, so some of, yeah. some of what became the classics that weren't hits, people were yelling right. out, which was pretty cool. That's a good point. Yeah, those weren't the singles. I love that true to what he was saying about, you know, not being a product and you have to be in control of it. He plays Where's the Orchestra? With a nod to Allentown at the end, right? But still, those where's the orchestra, and it sounded really good. It is, yeah. He says, uh, "Let me play a new one because I like the new stuff." You know, he's always yeah. excited about the new stuff. So, uh, yeah, he goes and and of all the songs to play, that's the one he does. I thought that was such a nice version. In fact, spoiler alert: uh, my uh, playlist episode coming up this summer, where I'm doing the Nylon Curtain live, that's going to be the version I'm using for Where's the Orchestra. He's done it in recent years at the Garden, which is which I like, but I just love 1982 Billy singing that song. So that's the version I chose. And uh, and the show ends there. They roll the credits and Night School is never heard from again until Frank Zappa writes his book and comes up with a completely different Night School. And I noticed a little something in the credits. So I'm scrolling through, you know, it's no secret that Jack and I are big Seinfeld fans. We're right. always dropping little, little bits of uh, Seinfeld throughout. And I'm actually in the middle of a rewatch for the 20 millionth time. I'm currently in season four. So I'm watching the credits, the end credits of this. And what name do I see pop up on my screen? But Joe Davola. Crazy Joe Davola. Crazy Joe Davola. <laughs> I'm going to put the kibosh on you. <laughs> hey, Jerry. I've kiboshed before and I will kibosh again. So now it's on to you. Head on over to YouTube. Give Night School a look. Tell us what you think. Did you enjoy it? Were you pleasantly surprised like we were? Did you catch anything that Billy Joel has said uh, later or earlier in his career that we didn't catch here? Another piece of uh, conceptual continuity, if you will. We'll put a link to the video in our show notes as well, too. So if you haven't seen it yet, uh, you can check it out. Such an interesting snapshot of 
Billy's headspace in 1982. And I, I, I really like that because I, that to me is a, a fascinating period of his career. Nylon Curtain is probably my number two album of all time of his. I love to hear his excitement for Where's the Orchestra? And I love to hear him talking about, you know, the new album. And and it's really cool to see how even at this stage, how he really wants to, you know, pay it back to the artists and really wants to help them out and help them avoid some of the, the pitfalls he's run into over the years. And, you know, there were more coming that happened after this. He's a good case study of things to look out for. Things were on full display here. He was really an open book. Absolutely. And I love how candid he is and how open he is. And this is really uh, a very personable side of Billy that doesn't always come across. It feels very approachable during this. So yeah. So tell us what you think. Yeah. You can email us at glasshousespodcast at gmail.com. We love your stories, your insights, and even your corrections. So we love you catching stuff that we miss or um, we just don't get fit into the episode so we love all of that so please uh write in anytime and you can find us on the socials facebook twitter instagram if you search glasshouses billy joel podcast you'll find us there and if you listen to us on apple podcasts head on over there it just takes two minutes to leave us a five-star rating and a positive review uh that just tells the almighty apple algorithms that we are a worthwhile podcast you can play such an instrumental role to help us continue to grow the podcast. We are into year three and we are closing in on 100,000 downloads and it's all because of you all. Um, You've been spreading the word. You've been sharing our posts. You've been really instrumental and and very helpful in helping us get to uh, continue to grow it and continue to produce these because uh, there's a long way to go and uh, you're the reason we, we keep doing it. Everything Michael said and more and we'll see you next time. We'll see you soon. Thanks everyone. I'm playing a new one because I like the new stuff.
Kibosh before. And I will. Kibosh again. It's NFL draft season, and that means it's time to start thinking about fantasy football. FantasyPoints.com features industry-leading experts and prognosticators using proprietary hand-charted data to help you score more fantasy points. FantasyPoints.com is the place to go for whatever kind of fantasy football you play. Whether you play fantasy football, daily fantasy sports, or do a little bit of everything, Fantasy Points has the meticulously researched content to guide you to victory. And why wait for the fall? Fantasy Points also covers the new spring football league, the UFL. Join the guru, John Hansen, Scott Barrett, Joe Dolan, and other massive names in the fantasy football universe with an exclusive offer. Use code Pantheon for 15% off any Fantasy Points package, including the all-in package, with access to every article, tool, and data nugget that Fantasy Points has to offer. That's FantasyPoints.com and code Pantheon for 15% off at Fantasy Points. FantasyPoints.com, code Pantheon. Score more Fantasy Points. Fantasy Points. 